Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 12 through 15 together this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. I must admit it's a, it's a little bit awkward and it's a little bit uh, self-serving, uh, it seems like, to uh, study a passage like this. And you'll, you'll uh, understand what I mean in just a moment. But starting in verse 12, the Spirit of God wrote this by the hand of the Apostle Paul for the church at Thessalonica. And we will read it and uh, pray for God's edifying grace to help us understand it. So verse 12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And now you know it's a bit awkward for me to kind of work through this uh, on behalf of the elders, but obviously it's given by the Spirit of God for our edification. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, if you remember all the way back in chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul started exhorting the believers in this church to please God and to even excel in what they're doing. This led to his emphasis on living in light of Christ's return and the importance of being alert and sober-minded, watchful, wearing the armor of God, faith, love, and hope. And so now the Apostle Paul turns his attention to how they are to relate to one another within the church. And this is how a church is going to be pleasing God as they're waiting for Christ to come back. So he's giving instruction for how a local church can be pleasing to God in the way they minister and relate to one another. So that seems to be the thrust of what he's going to be teaching on from here through the end of uh, the chapter. So as we look at this uh, passage, we begin to see that he starts out by, with a request. So again in verse 12 and 13, he says, But we request of you, brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So the first thing that he's making is a request to have a certain kind of attitude towards the leaders within the church. And we'll deal with who these, uh, exactly who these leaders are in just a moment. But uh, Timothy has just returned from the church of Thessalonica and he has given his report to the Apostle Paul. We read about that uh, back in chapter 3. And now that report that Timothy brought was, was mostly favorable. But there were some things that needed to be addressed. And it's kind of like the old saying where there's smoke, there's fire. There was a bit of a little bit of a tinge of smoke in the air of the church at Thessalonica. So the Apostle Paul is now going to address some of the issues that they need to correct uh, within the church. Now Paul was a master communicator, and uh, you should notice that before he addresses their shortcomings, he has kind of belabored the point to communicate and commend to them on several different areas how well they were doing. For example, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, he commended them for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. 
In chapter 1, verse 8, he commended them again that the word of the Lord had sounded forth from them. Chapter 2, he said that they were imitators of the churches in Judea because they were willing to suffer for the gospel. So again, he's commending them again. And in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Timothy brought back good news of their faith and love. And then in addition to that, in chapter 4, look at what he says in verse 1. That you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, but excel still more. So again, he commends them that they are walking and pleasing God. And then again, later on in verse 9 and 10, He says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So all of these compliments were designed to prepare their hearts for some correction. And I think what we see is that before the Apostle Paul brings up their shortcomings and corrects them in certain areas, he compliments them first. This reminds me of the Proverbs 16 verse 21 that says, Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. I think this is a lesson we can all learn from. That if you... If you have to come and correct someone, sometimes you will be more successful if you try to lay the groundwork and and build some rapport and show some appreciation before you bring bring and expose their, their shortcomings. Compliments before correction is kind of what Paul is doing here. In other words, before you plow the ground... You would be wise to dampen the soil first, right? It's easier to work if you dampen it first and then you plow it. That's the principle. Or in the words of that famous theologian Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar helps what? The mess- I'm not going to sing it. But she probably got that from the Apostle Paul. Because that's kind of what he's doing here. He is giving them a little some sweet compliments before he now has to deal with some of the issues that they need correction on. So the following exhortations that we see in this passage where he exhorts them to live in peace with one another and to admonish the unruly within the church suggests that some within the church were starting to rebel against the authority of the church leaders. Possibly the officers of the church were young in their faith and immature, not handling everything wisely. That's possible. But it seems that some in the church were overly critical of the leaders of the church. They were disobedient to their instruction or spreading views that were contrary to sound doctrine. And when this happens, the church suffers, factions can arise, the love, the peace, the unity within the church can be undermined, chaos can result, and church splits can be the ultimate consequence. So it's kind of like a disease, it's kind of like a cancer within the body that must be dealt with or removed to restore health within the body of Christ. So Paul, as a spiritual physician, is giving the prescription for medicine to heal this affliction. So the first thing he emphasizes in this passage is what they should be doing in contrast to what they were doing. So you should appreciate those who diligently labor over you, esteem them very highly in love, Some were not doing that within the church. That's probably why he is emphasizing it the way he is. And he actually makes this very, very, 
he raises the bar very high when he when he says esteem them very highly in love and that very highly is a word that means like in excess so i think what paul is doing is he's addressing a problem issue within the church of too much criticism that is undeserving or maybe that is unfair and he's basically exhorting them to have a different attitude towards the leaders within the church. Uh, appreciate them. I mean, they're not perfect, but appreciate them because of their work. They are laboring, serving, trying to serve the cause of Christ within the church. So think better of them than what some of y'all think of them. Don't trash them unless they're, they're guilty of sin. Then you need to reprove them and deal with it. But apparently that's not what's going on in this context. Of course, the other extreme, besides some who would just be overly critical of the leaders, the other extreme, the opposite, which is also not good, is to uh, put the leaders up on a pedestal and to elevate them far more than they deserve. Uh, Some people almost put uh, their leaders up on the level of being a demigod. Uh, They flatter them. They lift them up as if they were prophets. And and by the way, last week, I I flunked my prophet test, as was pointed out to me, because I made the the bold, confident prediction that it wasn't going to rain this last week for those that were here. And of course, what did God do? He showed, obviously I'm not a prophet, and I'm not a son of a prophet, and in fact, I even work for a non-profit organization, (laughs) so in no ways uh, do I qualify. But sadly, too many ministers are too quick to want that kind of power and prestige and praise that they are superior to others and just feeds their ego. And sadly, you see that within the church. Before that kind of praise should go to the heads of the leaders of the church, they need to remember that when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 was, was telling the church that they needed to provide support, he likened the, the teaching elders as to an ox, a, burst, a beast of burden, He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So if any church leader starts getting the big head, they need to remember Paul just, you know, he likens you to a beast of burden, an ox, which should bring about a little bit more humility. Richard Phillips in his commentary said, one of the challenges to appreciating your leaders and esteeming them very highly is that the longer people get to know their pastors and the elders, the more they become aware of their defects and their failings. Over time, it's inevitable, he writes, that a pastor is going to let virtually everyone down. They neglect their duties. They miss the appointment. They forget to follow up. Feelings are hurt. They're not available when needed. And thus the need to pray for the leaders within the church as well. Because we are not flawless, nor are we perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But in this situation, it appears that some within the church were overly critical. And so Paul is correcting that by telling them your attitude towards them needs to change. You need to appreciate them. Um, In verse 12 also, Paul describes who these leaders are. And... uh, there are basically three descriptions that he gives of these leaders that uh, apparently are being criticized excessively. They are those who diligently labor among you, number one. Number two, they have charge over you in the Lord. And number three, they give you instruction. Now in the Greek text, there's only one article that governs all three of these phrases. And most people observe that uh, that kind of clumps all three of these into the same group of people, whether they are elders or whether they are just officers of the church, which could be elders and deacons included, uh, at least in some of this, mainly elders though. 
And so he begins to, uh, to break it down into these three descriptions of these leaders. The first one is that they diligently labor among you. And it's an interesting word for labor here because oftentimes this particular Greek word is used for manual labor. Uh, Paul uses it in other places for uh, farm laborers and he even uses it of him making tents as a tent maker, that kind of labor. But the word is also used for spiritual labor of an apostle or of an elder within a church. So it would include the, the teaching ministry of the Word of God. That's the labor that uh, Paul probably has in mind along with other leadership responsibilities of counseling and ministering and giving instruction, visitation, praying, serving the body of Christ. All of that is within the labor that is envisioned by this, uh, this first description. So they are to appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And I think that ultimately could include the work of elders and, and deacons and even others who serve within the church in a variety of ways. Uh, we should appreciate those who serve us. Uh, this word labor also implies that it's work that is very strenuous and can cause weariness. For those who primarily have the privilege of studying to teach, it's not a physical weariness. It could be a mental or a spiritual weariness. But it's, uh, he says, those who diligently labor among you appreciate them. That's the first description. The second one is that they have charge over you in the Lord. They are managers, they are leaders uh, within the church. Uh, as the Lord has established that structure of elders and deacons within the church. Uh, the author of Hebrews uh, says something similar to this when he says to the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So this, this is a group that has charge over the saints in the church and their charge is over them in the Lord. Now, the idea that some have charged, like the elders and deacons in certain uh, ways, have, have charge over does not mean that they are little dictators within the church. The character of leaders we know is spelled out in other places in the New Testament and Old Testament. And they should be also adorned with humility and gentleness and have a servant's heart. You do not want a leader in charge of the saints who has a lust for power or praise or position. So that leadership within the church should look different than leadership within the world system. And that's the very point that Jesus was making. You remember in Mark chapter 10 when He says that leaders within the kingdom are going to be different than leaders within the world. And He says, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life a ransom for many. So even though the leaders of the church, primarily the elders in this regard, have charge over the church, that does not in any way mean that they have ultimate authority or power or become dictators. No, they're to be servants, uh, just like Jesus Himself. Peter also emphasized this in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he was addressing the elders of the church and he said, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So even though they have charge over, they're not to lord it over them, is the idea. So in this particular uh, description, 
The leaders are to have charge over the members of the church body, which implies they're to protect and care for them as well. They're to be like uh, fathers. This word charge is also used of fathers who have charge over their families. And it implies that these leaders should be carrying out their pastoral care like parental care. That's kind of the idea. Remember earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, Paul likened himself to a father and also to a nursing mother. So pastoral care is like parental care. And that seems to be the, the emphasis. They have charge, yes, but it's not to be abused. But see, they were criticizing the leaders because sometimes leaders have to make decisions that not everyone agrees with. And so that would raise the potential for criticism and coming back at them. And apparently, that was going on within the church to some degree. The charge that elders have over the, uh, the saints in the local church is in the Lord. In other words, their authority does not come from themselves. The authority comes from the Lord who put them in that position. And their authority is, is according to the guidelines of the Word of the Lord, which they should not transgress. So again, church leaders are not autonomous. They're not independent autocrats who rule according to their whims. They, respect, they are to re reflect Jesus' authority and they're called by the Holy Spirit to be under shepherds of the chief shepherd who is Jesus Christ. So the elders and other leaders of the church should imitate Christ in His, in His love for the people because Christ died for them to save them and that love should be in the heart of the leaders. The leaders should imitate Christ in His zeal for truth and holiness in His desire for the lost to be saved and the saints to be sanctified, and, for, and the leaders should have the ambition to live for God's glory. So, they have charge, yes, but they're also to represent and imitate Christ to the church as well. And of course, with that authority, which is in the Lord, the Lord will hold them accountable for their work and their ministry as well. So it's a sobering thought indeed. The third description of those who deserve appreciation is those who give you instruction. Your Bible may have who admonish you. Which is really the idea of the instruction. The word instruction here. It's the idea of admonishing or correcting those who are in sin or who are disobedient in their behavior. This is the Greek word instruction from which we get our English word nuthetic from. For those of y'all who are familiar with Jay Adams who kind of started the nuthetic counseling ministry which had a heavy emphasis on, on speaking truth and correcting sin in people's lives. That's where he gets this, uh, that, that word from. Nuthetic comes from the word here instruction. Of course, nuthetic counseling is now... Uh, morphed into the organization ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. But this is part of the function of leaders within the church is to admonish people when they're in sin. When they're not living in a way that pleases God, they should come and admonish them. And that's not just leaders. That's really a ministry that all believers should have, not just the leaders. But all in all, who's involved, who, who is being referred to with these three phrases? Uh, in some ways, you could say all church officers, elders, and deacons, but probably especially the, the elders in light of the second description that they have charge over you in the Lord, though that can apply in some ways with deacons as well, for sure. I think the point that's being emphasized is that within churches, sometimes leaders can become the targets of the disgruntled. I mean, just think of the Apostle Paul. He had a huge bullseye on his back. 
I mean, most of his letter to 2 Corinthians was just dealing with all of the attacks from the false teachers trying to undermine his apostolic authority. So Paul was continually dealing with this himself and elders within a local church can also deal with it. Sometimes it's justified. But he's dealing here with with issues that are not justified or they're not fair or they're not appropriate. Thus, he he kind of gushes on the church on in terms of how they should uh, have a better attitude to appreciate and esteem those leaders very highly uh, in love. There's also kind of a a mandate for church membership here because if leaders are to labor among you and have charge over you and give you instruction, even admonition, it implies there needs to be a a formal, organized uh, group of people. And of course, we are members of the New Covenant but, but it does imply the importance for church membership because people are accountable to the leaders within that church. Uh, people that are not uh, associated with the local church that are kind of lone rangers can become lone strangers. I mean, they can just kind of pop in and out whenever they feel like it or not go at all. And this is not, uh, this is not the way the, the local church should function. There are accountability patterns here established within the local church and it implies certainly the concept of church membership. Okay, from there, now the Apostle Paul switches to the relationship that the church has with one another. So he's been dealing with the relationship primarily of the disgruntled with the leaders, but now he's broadening his focus and just pointing on, uh, emphasizing the relationship with, within the church family in general. So notice he says at the end of verse 13, Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. So the emphasis here, obviously, is he kind of begins at the end of verse 13 with the importance of living in peace. And this could be a carryover from the leader-believer relationship, uh, but it could be just broader within the church. Live in peace with one another. It is, it is such a blessing when there's peace within the church. Uh, when there's no peace within the church, uh, there's friction, there's animosity, there's sides that are drawn, and it's just not good. And Paul is emphasizing to the church, live in peace with one another. Don't stir up strife or contention or hostility. Don't stir up the pot of controversy. It's not healthy. It destroys love and patience and kindness and tolerance within measure that should occur within a local church. Now, he's not saying pursue peace at any cost. It's not pursue peace at the expense of truth. He's not saying that. But peace in the midst of the fundamental truths of the Gospel. Pursue peace with the brethren. The word peace occurs 333 times in the Bible. 333. Number that I kind of run into often, kind of weird. But it's a prized possession in the New Testament. One of the things that Christ taught His disciples early on in the Beatitudes is that blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Christ said, within My kingdom, within My church, blessed are those people that are trying to bring about peace rather than conflict and division. Paul and Peter usually started their letters with grace to you and peace. Paul said to the Colossian church, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then in Ephesians 4, he exhorted the Ephesians to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. See, peace is a precious thing. 
virtue within the church. It's so important that within this passage, the concept of peace acts as bookends because when we finally get back down to verse 23 in this same chapter, Paul is going to bring about his benediction to the God of peace. So it's like he begins this exhortation within the church in general and he ends it with the idea of the importance of peace. Now within the church, there were several groups, three groups of people that needed particular attention. So in verse 14, he says, We urge you, brethren. So now this is the responsibility of all believers within the church, not just the leaders, but all believers. So we urge you, brethren. And the first group that needs to be addressed is admonish the unruly. Apparently some were unruly within the church. These may have been the ones who are overly criticizing the leaders. Now some of the translations, the ESV, the NIV, have idle instead of unruly. And so there's a, there's a debate on which is the better idea. The word unruly, the original Greek word, literally has the idea of someone who's out of step. And it would be used of, of soldiers marching and some of them are just out of step with the rest. So that's kind of the general basic original meaning of the word. And then it gradually it began to be used for those who are out of order, those who are undisciplined, those who are disruptive within the body of Christ. This could be fanatics or meddlers sticking their nose in other people's business where it doesn't belong or just stirring up trouble. It could be teaching disruptive doctrines. So the unruly has kind of a broad emphasis. Some of that could be, as he has already addressed, some in the church who were idle, who were refusing to work, and so they were relying on the generosity and the handouts of other people. Uh, later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul will address some who were claiming that the day of the Lord has already come. And they were claiming that they even had a letter from Paul that taught that. So again, the unruly could be also from a doctrinal perspective as well. Um, and probably again, these, these people were uh, a part of the crowd that were unnecessarily being critical of the leaders. So what's the medicine for them? Admonish them. Warn them to stop and start walking orderly in line with God's Word and admonish them to repent and reform. If the unruly do not do that, then Paul tells Titus in chapter 3 of that letter, reject a, fact, a factious man after a first and second warning. In other words, you carry out church discipline. If they're unruly, if they're disobedient, if they're creating trouble within the church, if they're irresponsible, then you admonish them. And if they don't repent, then you, you carry out church discipline. The second group that needed special attention in verse 14 is the faint-hearted. And this is an interesting word for faint-hearted. Literally, it means those who have a small soul. And what that expression meant was probably those who had a weak faith, that were discouraged, that were overly prone to excessive worry and anxiety. And you know, quite frankly, we all kind of get that way at times. We can all have a small soul or a weak faith. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the same word was used for those who struggled in their faith and therefore struggled with being patient, having endurance in the face of trials. They're the saints with a small soul. Their, their faith is just weak. Uh, possibly here, the idea could be uh, those who are struggling with the loss of departed loved ones that we saw back up in chapter 4. 
Or maybe they're, they're just struggling because they're unsure of their own salvation, the, the assurance of their own salvation. Or maybe their faith is weak and they're, they're faint-hearted because of all the trials. Remember, the church is going through persecution and afflictions because of their faith. And that can create faint-heartedness depending on the severity of the trials. So this is some of the experiences that uh, this group was, uh, was having. And what's the medicine for them? The remedy is to encourage them. The word encouragement was used of consoling Martha and Mary in the loss of their brother Lazarus. It says the people gathered around there and consoled them or encouraged. Same word. So with the faint-hearted, you're supposed to come and try to strengthen them, encourage their faith. The faint-hearted need the assurance that God is in control, that God loves them, that God has a good purpose behind the trial, though we may not understand that purpose, that it will be instrumental in their sanctification, and that they can find God's inner peace. And so what the responsibility of the church is, is when we run across those who are faint-hearted, is to try our best to encourage them. Paul told the Philippians, who wrestled with anxiety, he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So there he's trying to encourage the faint-hearted. And this is a ministry that can't be just left with leaders. It has to be inter-church ministry, that kind of fellowship and communion that we have in Christ. Be sensitive to ministering that way to those who are faint-hearted, to those who are struggling with a weakness in their faith in some area of their life. The third group that needs special attention are the weak. And he says, help the weak. Again, the word weak could be those who are physically weak. I mean, they're going through physical diseases. They're going through uh, all kinds of health concerns. And they need help. They are weak physically. That could be included in the meaning of this word. It could also be those who are struggling financially or they're just not able to make ends meet. That, that can be included. Kind of economic destitution. Or morally weakness. The word can also uh, refer to those that are struggling with sin. Again, those that are overly discouraged. They're, they become weak spiritually. And again, what's the medicine for them? Well, give them assistance. Help them. Don't belittle them because of their struggles. Don't ridicule them. Don't look down on them because you don't have those struggles. Now you come in, you help the weak. And what's interesting with this word help, the idea behind this word is, is that you draw near and stay close to them. You cling to them is really the, the idea of the word help. In other words, you don't abandon them in their needs. You draw near to them. You help them. You hold them up. You bear their burdens with them. So that is your responsibility for those around you that you observe are weak. And we may be weak also. But we need to get our eyes off of the, uh, onto other people and be more concerned and involved with them, and then draw near to them and stay with them, cling to them, to hold them up in their time of struggle. Sometimes, of course, the weak don't want to change. They don't want help. And then the best thing you can do is just pray for them and still try to help whenever you can. So those are three specific groups within the church that every believer needs to be sensitive to and to be willing to step out on faith to try to meet the need of the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And then from here, Paul now turns his attention to 
a broader set of exhortations which can even expand beyond the brethren within the church. So they're broader in focus. So there's three of those. The first one is be patient with everyone. So now he's coming back to, the, to another virtue of patience. We need to have peace, but we also need to have patience. Now this could include, as we minister to those three groups, in verse 14, because sometimes in ministering to people, we can get frustrated and impatient with them, but you need to be patient with everyone. But not just those three groups, with everyone across the board. See, the reason why this is important is because impatience indicates a restless heart that's often just self-centered. I get impatient with you because you're taking up my time. Right? Or, or I get impatient with you because I want to do this and I'm, I have to do that. Or, you know, we, we, we come up with all kinds of, of reasons to justify being impatient with other people. I want my time schedule. I don't want anybody messing with that. And we can get irritated because we have to wait on other people. When the last time you went to the coffee drive through and you put in your order and there are four or five cars in front of you and one of them seems like they're there for an hour, it's easy to become impatient. Or you're at a green light, you're at a red light, turns green, and you can see that person in the car in front of you is on their phone and they're totally oblivious that it's now a green light. And how do we feel? How do we respond? I remember even when I was in seminary because the best of Saints can fall prey to this. One of my good buddies in seminary and I were going to a movie and I think, uh, I think Alien had just come out. And I think that movie scarred me for life. But we, I didn't know it at the time, but we, went to, we, we were going to go see it. So we, we drove up, there was a red light in front of us and my friend was a, was a Yankee from New Jersey and uh, there were a couple of cars in front of us. The light turned green. The car in front of us hesitated, I don't know, half a second, maybe at the longest. And my friend, my Yankee friend from New Jersey, I mean, just immediately when it turned green, he stuck his head out the window and yelled out, Move it! And uh, did I mention he was a Yankee? <laughs> but... Okies can be just as bad, if not worse. We can be just as impatient at a, at a green light as anybody. But it just shows a lot of times if, if things aren't moving at our speed, we get impatient. And particularly in dealing with other people. And so Paul is just exhorting the church, be patient with everyone. Uh, God's in control of the timing and we just have to learn to, to wait on Him. And it's not easy uh, but the impatient people are more likely to retaliate when they're injured. If you're impatient and someone does something to you, harms you or injures you, then, then you're more inclined to want to retaliate against them. So that moves us into verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. That is not allowed for Christians who name the name of Jesus Christ. No one should repay another with evil for evil. Obviously, this is a big theme for the Apostle Paul. He stresses it in other passages. In Romans 12, he says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Sometimes that's not possible from our perspective. But never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And not only there, but Paul emphasizes in other places. When we are reviled, we don't revile in return, we bless in return. I mean, this is what Christians do. People revile us, they attack us, we don't return insult for insult. No. 
we respond with a blessing upon them. I mean, that is evidence of supernatural grace. But that's what should characterize our lives. Even with people at work. 1 Peter 3.9 Peter says the same thing. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Where did they come up with that novel lifestyle? Well, the fountainhead was Christ Himself in Matthew 5.44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It comes ultimately from the Lord Jesus. So we are not to repay one another evil for evil. And that, now some people, and, and of course, uh, the Lord was actually correcting a distortion among the Jewish teachers of the law because I think they looked at the lex talionis, which is the law of retribution in the Old Testament. You, you know that law. Uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. And they thought that meant personal revenge was biblical. And they interpreted those verses as allowing for vengeance and repaying evil for evil. If they took my eye, then I, I'd be able to take their eye. No, that is reserved for civil authorities, not for personal revenge. That's the context of the lex talionis. But they were abusing it. Christ is correcting it. On a personal level, we need to love our enemies, forgive them, that doesn't mean we can't have a, a law court intervene to bring about justice, but we do not repay evil for evil. Cannot take personal revenge. And then he moves into the next one, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So we should always, not part-time, but always Pursue what is good for everybody within the church and outside the church. Good for one another and for all people. We should pursue what is good. Again, the Apostle Paul illustrated that in Romans 12 when he says, If your enemy is hungry, what do you do? You feed him, you do good to him. If he's thirsty, what do you do? You give him a drink. You do good to him. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the best testimonies you can have if someone is mistreating you and harming you is do something good for them. Do something good. They may not receive it, but that is our responsibility is to overcome evil with good. And again, this is responsibility of all believers within the church. This is how we are to relate to one another within the body of Christ and also with those outside the church as well. So it's kind of all-encompassing. You know, this is... Um, this is how the Apostle Paul is exhorting the church to imitate Christ, to please Christ until He comes. The church needs to have a good witness, not only among ourselves in the love and the harmony, the peace that we should have among ourselves, but also with those outside the church. And this is probably the reason why the church was growing with leaps and bounds during the first century because of the transformation of people that came out of this pagan worldview where they were returning evil for evil, where they were involved with other people showing impatience and, and no love for them, and yet the Gospel had, had transformed them. And because their lives were changed, People saw that. They saw that these Christians, they love instead of hate. They're full of love. That these Christians, they, they seek to bless people, not to blast people. And they actually are committed to doing good, not evil. And when people saw the difference, it made them thirsty to know the God that they worship. Now this good that we're to pursue after, it's when he says, 
seek after that which is good for one another and for all people, that really branches out our witness beyond the local church within the culture, within the community to pursue what is good for other people. Proverbs 14 says that righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And I think Christians should be mindful of even trying to promote what is good for our neighbor or to love our neighbor as ourselves. So whether it's trying to end abortion, I mean, these things are good. Promoting biblical righteousness, that's good for the people and it also honors God as well. But this is the witness we should have within the church and outside the church. And as Paul is saying, this is how we please God as we wait for Christ to come back. This is, this is how a church lives that's actually living according to God's will, seeking to please God. They manage themselves within the church. They suppress unnecessary criticism. They appreciate the leaders. They deal with one another that are struggling within the church. They have peace with one another. They have patience with one another. They're not abusing or sinning against one another. But there's love and harmony and unity and peace within the body of Christ. If we live that way, and if our lives are showing that kind of a heart and love, not only for one another, but for, for the goodness sake of those outside the church, it will increase our witness that the Gospel hopefully would claim more sinners by the grace of God and that Christ would build His, His church through the godly witness of the church. So may God uh, remind us of these things and impress them upon our hearts that we might go forth to imitate these in our own lives for the glory of Christ. So with that in mind, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we uh, thank You for the Apostle Paul's sensitivity uh, to address some matters in the church that needed some correction And Lord, we just thank You for the faithfulness of the Spirit of God also who uh, deals with us in areas where we need correction. And we just pray, Lord, that You would grant us the grace if, if we have fallen short in areas to confess it and pray for the ministry of the Spirit to empower us to live the kind of life that pleases You, Lord, as we await the return of our Savior. So Lord, we all are weak in many ways. We need Your help. And we thank You, Lord, that You ultimately are our helper. That You're the only one, ultimately, that can minister Your grace to our hearts. You oftentimes do it through other believers, through the saints. But Lord, ultimately, You are our help. You are our rock and our strength. So Lord, We pray for Northwest Bible Church. Help us to live out these exhortations that they become a part of our life, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.